Welcome to Mindful Social, the show that intersects mindfulness and emotional intelligence with the hectic online world we live in today. When I first heard about cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, it really resonated with me, an approach that helps us to change our thinking patterns for the better. Skills to cope with things like anxiety, stress, dependencies, and depression. Fascinating. So of course, when I read the CBT workbook for mental health, I had to learn more. Today's guest is Sarah Fader, co-author of the workbook with Dr. Simon Rigo. She's a mental health advocate, CEO and founder of Stigma Fighters, a mental health nonprofit organization dedicated to helping real people living with mental illness. She's also a podcaster, an author, and now a friend. Have a listen. I know you're going to find this interesting too. (sighs) Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm really excited to talk to you because honestly, CBT is one of my favorite ways to solve my little problems. But uh, I really enjoyed the workbook. And I'd love to get to know a little bit more about you and how you got here. Um, Tell me a little bit more about your background and your support of people who are dealing with mental health. Well, I've been dealing with mental health challenges, I would say, since I was a teenager. I had panic attacks starting in high school, and I was really lucky to have a mom that had anxiety and depression because I didn't know what was going on when I had my first panic attack. It was terrifying. Mm. I thought I was dying. And so I remember turning to my mom and, uh, and saying, I, I think I'm having a, I, I don't even remember exactly what I said, but I was like, something's really wrong. Like I felt like I was going to die. And I remember taking her hand and she said, you're having a panic attack. Mm. And, oh, I know what I said. I said, I need to go outside because everything felt so overwhelming that I felt like it was closing in on me. Yeah, exactly. No one can see me, of course, but I'm I'm like motioning that things are closing <laughs> in on me. Yeah. Um, so the yeah. room gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, and it, it's this feeling. I mean, I, I I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily claustrophobic, but I feel I when I feel anxious, I don't want to be inside. It's the last place I want to be. So I remember going, her taking me outside, and then. I just, after that, I just felt different. I felt like I was experiencing these secret problems and all my peers seemed to be normal, whatever normal means, Mm -hmm. um, kind of just functioning day to day. And meanwhile, I had all these intrusive thoughts and I I didn't know exactly what that meant, though my dad has OCD. So like, I remember him when I was younger, like taking my mom into the other room because he was trying to tell her about his intrusive thoughts and stuff. So I, I mean, my parents were pretty open about mental health, although I think at the same time, um, they struggled too, but it, but they, they openly talked about it enough that I felt like there was a place for me to talk about it. Mm. And so when, when I, I grew up in the nineties, like I was in high school in the nineties. So I feel like that was a time where it was like, Oh, don't talk about that stuff. You know, um, if, if it, it was like, 
if you were depressed, then people would make fun of you and be like, oh, you're just, you know, like a teenager. Oh, it's a phase, you know, you'll grow out of it. And I never grew out of it. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, I remember sitting in Barnes and Noble reading Elizabeth Wurzel's Prozac Nation in like secret shame thinking, I don't want anyone to see me reading this. But at the same time, I was fascinated because finally someone shared my experience. I, I felt like, oh, wow, like somebody actually understands. Mm-hmm. And then I remember in my senior year of high school, after having these debilitating panic attacks where I was like throwing up every day, mm-hmm. like literally I, I, would, I would get so anxious that I would throw up. And I was just at the mercy of my anxiety. I decided, well, my, I think my, my parents said, do you want to see a psychiatrist? And I was like, yes. And I remember also before that, by the way, I have ADHD, so I'm going to just go, this is not going to be linear. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, my, my listeners are used to that. Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so I remember my therapist in high school when I was like 15 or, or 16, I kept saying, please, I, I just want, there's got to be some medication that could help me. I, and she said, there's no magic pill that can help you because you have to remember it's the nineties, you know, Prozac was out. They were just starting to use Prozac to treat depression. Um, well, not just starting, but it was like the thing that they used and mm-hmm. they were not necessarily giving it to teenagers. Like I remember some of my peers got, um, I, I remember hearing about teenagers taking Paxil, but at the same time, it wasn't something that, that was like, my therapist was discouraging me for medication. Hmm. And so, but I finally, when I was 18, I was able to um, go on medication. I remember taking Prozac for the first time and thinking, wow, this is what normal people feel like. <laughs> like I, I was looking because I, my head was clear. The, the mm-hmm. intrusive thoughts were, were pretty much gone. I was like, where, I didn't realize how much space you guys were taking up. It was like, they were renting so much space. Well, not even renting. They weren't paying rent. They were just hanging out there. So, you know, I went through a lot of my life hiding from mental illness. And I think um, I kind of learned, I'm sure we'll get back to this later, but I learned how to hide it and how to do things that I was good at and avoid the things that I wasn't good at because it was like I had to survive somehow, right? So I, I just avoided what I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I think avoidance also is a big part of ADHD. But when I had kids, I started thinking to myself, well, first of all, the fact that I had kids, I was like worried about passing down the mental health issues to my kids. But when I had them, I was like, I should they ever have mental health challenges? I don't want them to feel like they can't either come to me or talk about it at all. And so I wanted to create an environment, you know, where people could talk about living with mental health challenges. And that's when I started writing online. Um, I wrote this article for the Huffington Post called Fighting Against the Stigma of Mental Illness. And that's when I actually wrote, you know, I have panic disorder. Like I remember actually writing those words and it was so freeing. And then Once I wrote that, I had people reaching out to me and saying, you know, that I'm so, thank you for sharing your story. It really resonated with me. Where can I share my story? And I couldn't find a place, like a centralized location for people to share their stories. So I was like, 
well, I'm going to create one. And that's why I created stigmafighters.com mm-hmm. uh, as a web, a web series first. And then I met my, um, my business partner, Allie Burke, and we developed it into a nonprofit. But Stigma Fighters started as a blog series where people would share their experiences living with mental illness in a thousand words. And then we developed it into a nonprofit. We were featured on the front page of the Washington Post. And mm-hmm. um, I had this like this hashtag, this is what anxiety feels like, go viral on Twitter. And I started talking about what it feels like to be anxious, truly, because I think there's also a lot of misconceptions about anxiety. But Needless to say, Stigma Fighters was a way for me to feel like a, a part of a community, like I wasn't a freak, you know, and because um, I think that was a lot, I think a lot of times when you're living with mental illness or mental health challenges, you feel other than or like right. you don't, there's nowhere to to belong or like a lunch table to sit at, you know, proverbial lunch table. And so <laughs> I wanted to make that a whole cafeteria where everybody could hang out and really talk about their challenges. And so that, that was why I started Stigma Fighters. And then. Okay. I got to jump in there for a second. Yeah. You started Stigma Fighters and then you got all this press. How much anxiety did that cause? Oh, well, I mean, I am a little bit of an attention whore. So I, I don't <laughs> think <laughs> I, I was excited about that. Like it's weird because I'm introverted, mm-hmm. but I also really like attention like certain kinds of attention. So I was so excited because I was like, I worked so hard to, for this cause and I really wanted attention drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wow, this is so great. Like finally the thing I worked so hard for, there people are paying attention. Right, so and- validation and... Yeah, it was validation, but also the the reporter who interviewed me for the Washington Post was so awesome. Her name is Colby Itkowitz. And when she started talking to me about Stigma Fighters, I was like, well, this is not just about me. Like, let me tell you about all these other awesome people that you should, you mm. should interview for this article. So she's like, well, I better talk to Jennifer Marshall. Because she had, a, she, um, Colby had approached me and I was like, well, you can't interview me without interviewing the people that are a part of this community. So it became this really big article and it's called Unashamed and Unwell. And it was on A1 of the Washington Post, but I feel like to answer your question, like it did not cause me anxiety in the way that other things do. Like I I will, would be more anxious if like a really good friend didn't call me back. I think they were mad at me or um, you know, just that sort of thing. Like I get more like social anxiety or mm-hmm. like, I think that that's an, another thing is like having ADHD too. And I got diagnosed late. Like I got diagnosed in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly convinced that I did something wrong. Like it's a repetitive thing where I'm like, Oh, I offended somebody or, mm-hmm. you know, so this person's mad at me and I don't know why. You know, and so I feel like that's the type of stuff that causes me the most anxiety. Yeah, I think but a yeah. lot of us can relate to that. Yeah, and that, and so what I was go- going to say was with Stigma Fighters, I started getting people reaching out to me for more opportunities. That I had a publisher called Callisto Media ask if I wanted to write a depression workbook. And I was like, yeah, that would be great. Um, but because I don't have clinician credentials like I I don't have I don't have a master's in anything 
really. Mm -hmm. I have a master's in life. <laughs> um, but no, I don't have a master's in life. No one knows what we're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. But um, I, I, so they said, well, you can write it with a clinical psychologist. I had all this mental health knowledge and I used to work as a vocational rehab counselor. So I've worked with clients that have dual diagnosis and stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, helping them, you know, get back to work and all that stuff. But I don't have the, the degree on paper to do it. Like, right. even though I feel like somebody would buy a book written by me about mental health, but it doesn't matter because they hooked me up with the really, really awesome clinical psychologist, Dr. Simon Rigo. Simon is the nicest Canadian I know. Canadians are nice no matter what. But Canadians are nice. They're so nice. But he's he is really just a warm, wonderful person. And he was the best writing partner. So we, we t together wrote the 10-step depression relief workbook. Mm -hmm. And that did really well. And, I, and I'm really, I'm happy about how that turned out because I think, you know, the feedback I've gotten is that it, it has helped people and it is CBT based. It's cognitive behavioral therapy based. So then I went on to write this, another workbook with um, a social worker named Robin Kirk. It's a mindfulness workbook for OCD. Mm. That was really fun because I have OCD. And so it really taught me like, you can sit with your feelings and still have intrusive thoughts. Like you don't have to like do something to get mm -hmm. rid of them. And I, I really love CBT in general because I think it's very, it's versatile and it, it's things that are practical, that tools that you can use on a daily basis to deal with these negative thought patterns and change the way that you feel. Mm -hmm. And so that leads me to the CBT workbook for mental health, which is the final workbook that um, I've written thus far with, with Simon again, with Dr. Rigo. And that I think was a really challenging workbook to write, but it was so rewarding because I think what we wanted to do with the CBT workbook for mental health was to diversify the exercises and make them give something to, to everybody, right? Like mm -hmm. we, we did stuff for relationships. We did stuff for mindfulness, we did stuff for like managing social, uh, social anxiety or um, relationships. Yeah, relationships. That's mm -hmm. but the, it's it has so many different ways to cope with mental health stuff and like things that you would experience in your life. And I mean, you could flip to a random page of the CBT workbook and be mm -hmm. like, "Wow, that's interesting. I can I try found that, that exercise. to be true. I <laughs> found that to be true." And before we get a little bit further. Let's just define what cognitive behavioral therapy is, what okay. it does, what's it about? Okay, so cognitive behavioral therapy is a modality that was created by Dr. Aaron Beck. Um, and the way that it works is that you, you can't change your thoughts, right? You, you are stuck with the way that you think. However, you can reframe your thoughts so that your feelings change. If you change your reaction to your thoughts and, and the, the, um, the meaning that you place on them, mm -hmm. you can change the way you feel. That's, very, that's essentially the, the principle behind CBT. Mm -hmm. And it's based on um, these things called cognitive distortions. So there are, I think, 15 common cognitive distortions but 
common ones include black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking, which meaning like uh, everybody hates me mm. or I'm, I'm always bad at um, writing, you know, so they, the black and white thinking, mind reading. So I, I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, you know, Janet thinks I'm an idiot. Right. Like, but I don't know what you're, I don't know what she's, I don't know what you're thinking. I can't read right. your mind or fortune telling, which is you, you believe that you know what's going to happen in the future based upon no actual evidence. Mm-hmm. Like you just, you're like, well, I'm just going to fail, you know, or then labeling, which is like, um, I'm a loser or I suck or whatever. So the, the idea behind CBT though is, is to identify when you're have when you're experiencing a, a distorted thought or a, um, a cognitive distortion, and then question the validity of that. Mm-hmm. Like, if I for the the easiest example of that is like is black and white thinking, because so many of us do that. I almost said it just now. I, I almost said all of us do that. <laughs> that would be black and white thinking, right? I can't say that for sure because I don't know. Mm-hmm. But many of us, in my experience, utilize black and white thinking. So an example of black and white thinking would be, I failed this exam. I always fail tests. Mm -hmm. So you stop and say, is that actually true, though? Do I always fail every single test I've ever taken? Probably not. Right? So so it's like you, you actually take a step back and question, is this a distortion? What distortion can I find in this thought? Mm. And so then it walk me through what the process of reframing that looks like then. So, so you would say, so let's say you say to yourself, okay, I, I always fail tests, right? Mm. So, you say, so you say, well, is that true? Let's reality test that. Let me think of some of the tests that I've taken. Well, I can remember this test that I actually passed. Let me, let me actually write down what is, what is the truth? Is there truth in here? Mm. And then well, actually before that, you would say, I always fail tests. And then you would write down how, how that thought makes you feel. So you would say, so like, if I were to say, I always fail tests, I would, I would write down, I feel sad. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to reframe it. I'm going to say, well, is that true? Do I always fail tests? No, sometimes I fail tests and sometimes you know, I, I pass them. It depends on the test really. So all I can do is, is if I'm really struggling with a subject is I can ask for help. So maybe I get a tutor or maybe I work with somebody who is in my class that knows the the subject or what, whatever resource there, there is a solution. So the solution is I ask for help in some way. Mm -hmm. Great. And and so then, so then I, I go, I revisit the statement and say, no, that's not true. I don't always fail tests and, and I can succeed at a test. So now do I feel on a, on a scale of one to 10, how sad do I feel? Probably like a three. I'm sad that I failed the test, but I don't feel like I'm always going to fail it. Mm-hmm. So that writing down and revisiting is a really important aspect. Yeah. And there is something that I don't have it in front of me right now, but the thought record is really crucial to CBT. So that there, in the CBT workbook, you'll find a section on thought records where you actually write down the thought, you write down the feeling associated with the thought, then you reframe the thought to be more productive, and then you write down the feeling you feel afterwards. Hmm. Yeah. 
And I, I think it's also important. It's really important, though, in that in the thought record process to identify the cognitive distortion. Mm-hmm. Yes, because you want to get good at once you once you start thinking and analyze like once you it's it's like when you have a negative emotion or when I don't like to think of emotions as, as negative emotions are just emotions but when when you have an emotion that makes you uncomfortable it's likely because there's a cognitive distortion involved mm-hmm. so once you start identifying the cognitive distortions you'll get better and better and you almost automatically will reframe things without having to write them down so really when you look at it it's more about identifying the feeling than the thought because you you go okay i'm feeling really crappy right now why is that oh it's that thought that i always yeah, feel test exactly and then you recognize the distortion that's right but sometimes the the reason depression is so tricky is because there's so many negative thoughts and so many distortions going on at once that it's hard to tease them out. So the brain gets overwhelmed. So you're just like, I just want to go to sleep. My thoughts are so overwhelming. Right. So it's like when it when it's something like that where you're depressed and you can't even decode what what's ha- like what thought like you can't even it's like fireflies you're trying to catch the thoughts. Mm-hmm. So the best thing to do in that situation, well, all or nothing thinking. There's no best. Um, a See, good thing to guys, do. Are you listening? See that? <laughs> um, well, it, and actually, it's really it's all or nothing thinking is one of the easiest ways to do is is one of the easiest things to, to catch. Yeah. For many people, because it's you know every all mm-hmm. nothing always never like if when you if you ever hear yourself saying those things be, you'd be like mm, it's that's likely not true because absolutes only mo- most of the time happen in like math <laughs> you know so right, absolutes right. and feelings are not necessarily correlated mm-hmm. you know but yeah so so it's like you you want to you want to address the feeling. I feel sad. Okay. What's the thought going through my head right now? So you're right. You would think I, I feel this way. What's causing me to feel this way? Mm-hmm. What am I thinking? And, and one thing you can do sometimes it's, it's really hard to do a thought record when you can't, when, when it's hard to, to identify what thought is really weighing on you. So what you can, what you can do is journal. Sometimes it helps to, to just write stream of consciousness without thinking or even organizing it. And then you'll find in what you write down, there's likely a lot of cognitive distortions when you're feeling sad or angry. Yeah. And sometimes you go back. I mean, I've, I've always, always, I just said it too. I have often really gotten wrapped up with how much I don't like journaling because to me, it's about a diary that, I'm writing this so someone else will read it someday and feel bad about how they made me feel bad or whatever it is. So I've always had, I've often had a little guilt around that and then I didn't journal. But when I started going through the process of recording my thought and then drilling through it a little bit and just doing stream of consciousness writing for a minute even, and then going back and reading it, I was often surprised at what I saw in the writing that wasn't really in my head yet. So it's a wonderful process 
And I think it helps us too to, to step back and get a little perspective as though we're observing ourselves having that thought, which really can help us kind of um, get separated from the feeling. Yeah, and I, I like what you said too, because I know sometimes it's, it's you think that, I, I know I thought that when I'm writing a, a journal entry or just writing stream of consciousness writing, you're like thinking, oh, this outside observer is going to read this, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's almost like your inner critic is, is kind of creeping in, you know? Hovering over your shoulder. Exactly. <laughs> so um, sometimes I like to do that stream of consciousness writing in a way to understand, like some, I, sometimes I don't know, like kind of what you were saying, I don't know how I feel until I write it down. Mm. I think there's actually a word for that, but I can't remember. Somebody, there is, there is a, a phrase that identify that, that communicates that, like not knowing how you feel until you write it. Mm -hmm. But um, alexithymia, I think it's called. Oh, um, I was going to remember that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I remember it only because it's so weird. I mean, I have to look it up now. Um, <laughs> alexithymia is a personality trait uh, characterized by the subclinical inability to identify, describe emotions by oneself. The characteristic of alexithymia is marked by dysfunctional, dysfunction and emotional awareness. Furthermore, people with high levels of alexithymia can have difficulty distinguishing and appreciating the emotions of others. But I know, I know that mm. sometimes it, it, it is hard for me to, to know what I feel unless I write it down. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think that, you know, some, it's also like, it's one of those things too, you know, my therapist will be like, you should do this helpful exercise. And then I'm like, in my head, I'm never going to do that. Like, it, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's what I think to myself. I'm like, that sounds great out loud. I'm thinking I'm not going to do that. That's sometimes how I feel about journaling. Mm -hmm. I know that it's going to make me feel better, but it just feels like work. Yep. You know? Yep. I can relate to that. And yet when I do journal, I'm always surprised at the output. And so I tell people, oh, you really need to journal. But I think they can feel that I don't really mean it because I don't journal as much as I'd like to. So, you know, they're like, kind yeah, of, right. <laughs> yeah, they're like, okay, really, show me your journal. Uh, no, not I don't think so. But it's a wonderful therapeutic tool if we use it. I agree. Yeah. I think the, um, in the book you have, 10 cognitive distortions and I, I went through them and identified them and, and recognized how many times I had used most or all of them. And it's really fascinating how we don't step back and, and look at ourselves very often. We like to say, you know, live in the moment, but oftentimes we're not actually in that moment we're in a different moment altogether and that's so true that is really where i think cbt is extremely useful to be able to kind of get a hold of okay this is what i'm feeling right now and just focus on the feelings until you can figure out what it's about and if you focus just on one feeling then it's much easier to discern. But as you said, a lot of times we have so many feelings going on all at once that we can't identify the one that's making us crazy. Sorry, not crazy, but you know what I mean. Someone is snoring and I'm like, who is it? Oh, it's my cat. Um, 
So no, it's so it's true. Well, I don't I don't uh I feel like it's so weird. Crazy crazy means so many different things to different people, right? Like I feel like it's been used as a pejorative term for for um you know, people that have mental illness, but it's kind of become meaningless at this point. Mm. You know, it, kind of like it's like mindfulness. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like a right. Mindfulness is like a buzzword. It <laughs> it's is. like what does that even mean? No one knows. Yeah. Um but yeah, I I think I think it's good to, you know, we can all, all I can do, it's like, I, all you can do is your best. Mm -hmm. So if you can pull one thought from the 500 thoughts that you're thinking and just go, well, I'm not going to get to all of them because they're overwhelming, but what's the one that's like really wanting attention right now? Mm -hmm. Because that that's you know if you pay attention to that one that's screaming out like hey you know and i think we also find with the cognitive distortions that there are themes like there are definitely ones that i do more than others mm. for example personalization i i as a as a sensitive person i'm constantly like oh they're mad at me or like i did something or this is because of me and it's something that a lot like a lot of times these things are not they're not just this is the thing this is the only criticism I guess I have of CBT is that I feel like it doesn't account for trauma mm. because one of the one of the I that's why I like DBT a little bit more when it comes for to trauma work mm -hmm. because CBT can help you deal with the thoughts in the moment which is really helpful but then it's like well let's think about what's going on on a deeper level why am I why am I having all these personalization thoughts persistently? Mm -hmm. Probably because of something that happened to me in the yeah. past. Now you're going to have to define DBT though. Oh, sure. Okay. So, so CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy and DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. And DBT is kind of like if CBT and mindfulness had a baby, <laughs> right? So it, what did it, the the four principles of DBT are mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance. Now, what is the fourth one? It'll come to me. Mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, and I don't know. I'll have to look it up at some point. Back <laughs> um, yeah. Hold on, I'll look it up. But I know those those are the three out of four. Google or I've ever seen. I thank you. Three out of four ain't bad. Um, <laughs> I really do love DBT though. Dialectical behavioral therapy. Okay. The four, let me see the four principles. Um, did you do there? Mindfulness, distress tolerance. Oh, emotional regulation. Of course, that's the oh. one I forgot. <laughs> yeah. So I think so. A lot of so DBT was initially developed by Marsha Linehan, who was a psychologist who had borderline personality disorder. Mm. And she found that CBT was effective, but did not um, entirely treat borderline. So it was, it was a module that was developed to specifically deal with emotional regulation. Because people that have borderline have trouble regulating their feelings. Mm -hmm. They'll have really, really, you know, 
um, I was talking to a therapist about this and it's like, usually a person with borderline has experienced severe trauma and they are a sensitive person. So those two things together can create borderline. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to, to, to understand that, to have compassion for someone who's experienced that level of trauma and, and can't necessarily regulate their feelings. So they might lash out at people. They might be afraid that people will abandon them. That's a hallmark of borderline mm. is, is this fear of abandonment. But the th- so the thing that I really like about DBT as opposed to CBT is that if you, so let's say you're feeling sad and you want to know why you're feeling sad, but it's such a painful feeling because you're, you know, like the way that I sometimes describe it is my feelings are so painful. I feel like a porcupine. Like, but they're just like, sta- they're like stabbing me. And what DBT will teach you is to stay with the feeling. Don't fight the feeling, you know, because one of the, the maladaptive coping mechanisms that I would use is avoidance. Yes. I don't want to feel those feelings. Mm-hmm. But DBT would say, sit, sit with the feeling. So then you could sit with the feeling. Don't try to run away from it. And then you could use your CBT exercises to say mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what thought is happening for me? Why am I feeling this way? But the, the principle behind DBT is that the emotions are so painful that you have to learn to tolerate them in order to do the work. Yeah. And it's very easy to just go with, okay, I'm not going to feel this anymore. But the problem is, is that then you're just sitting on top of a powder keg waiting for it to go off. Exactly. And that, and that it's re- I, I find as a sensitive person that it's really challenging to have these, re- these intense emotions. And I, I want, I just have like, <laughs> I've, I've thought the, I've thought many times, like, I wish I could just give my feelings away. Mm. You know, I, I don't, I don't want them, but what DBT teaches is that no feeling is a bad feeling. Emotions are just feedback. Mm-hmm. So you're, there's nothing bad or wrong about how you feel. It's just about the fact that it's about learning to tolerate and deal with the feelings. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about, and then, so then we get to like interpersonal effectiveness. If you have trouble dealing with your emotions, you are going to impact other people. Yes. Right? Because if I'm so distressed that I'm lashing out at you, that's not going to make you feel good. No. And it's going to impact everything after that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like DBT and CBT can work hand in hand. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, think, I, see, I think CBT is great for anxiety and for depression. Mm-hmm. Because when you are anxious, and it's also used to treat OCD too, but when you're feeling anxious, there are a lot of cognitive distortions going on, and there is a lot of times with anxiety, there's this, this need to control things. And what can you not control? You cannot control your thoughts. Mm-hmm. But what you can do instead of trying to control or stop them is, is choose how you respond to them. Yes. I like the way that the exercises worked in the workbook. And one in particular that comes to mind in this conversation is the four breath practice and sitting in meditation 
and whether you accept meditation as you know a perfect thing or not and I don't think it's perfect unless you know you really have a lot of time to dedicate to it but actually being able to sit to take that four breaths and evaluate and take four breaths and reevaluate is so valuable as a way because you know when we start breathing like that and, and I'm sure you're aware of this but when we start breathing like that, we're stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system. We're kicking in the vagus nerves a little bit, and it allows us to settle enough to be able to really listen to what's going on. And yeah, and I think I think that the mindfulness component is is great, and breathing is something that you can always come back to. You will always have your breath. You don't have to go search for that tool. It's there. It's that sometimes when we are so caught up in a feeling, we forget that we have our breath, but it's yes. something you can always come back to. Mm -hmm. And it's that practice of the four breaths is great when you are feeling an intense emotion. You can pause and go do that breathing exercise to calm down the nervous system and then be able to respond afterwards because you're not going to be able to react or respond to something when you are in a fight or flight like state. Right. So using your breath to calm your body will then calm your mind. Yes. And allow us to be evaluative instead of reactive. The whole idea of switching from reactivity to responding is really crucial in mindfulness and in CBT as well. And I guess DBT. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. No, it's it's so, and and it really does, it really, the, the thing, I also love mindfulness-based CBT because it combines the two, the two components of, um, of, of it, 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 it actually, mindfulness um, makes CBT more effective. Because if you are mindful and just sit, you sit there and you, you can wait for the thought to come. You don't have to overanalyze or obsess about it. You just let yourself feel your feelings. Casually ask yourself a question about what you're feeling. And the answer is there. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think, I think CBT doesn't want you to work so hard. <laughs> right to to fix the problem the the reason cbt exists is problem solving it wants to solve problems well and it's that level of anxiety i think that pushes us to gotta fix this gotta do something and that just escalates from there and if we can take the pause even if it's just one breath it can begin to give us a place to stand and to work from and that's the power that I find in it. In any I, yeah, I, I could not agree more. I think, I think that it's, it's difficult for people that have anxiety, like me, to, to, to pause. Because in my, in my brain, I just want to go, I want to fix things, I want to, you know, I want to do. But there is a lot to be said from taking a break and not doing, you know, and I think one of the things that really helps me when it comes to anxiety and even in CBT based practices is, is stopping and saying, 
is there an action that I could take right now? Mm. Yes, no, right? It's, it's, very, it's very clear because a lot of times we get so caught up in the emotions of things. That's where the rumination and the obsession comes from is right. you want your brain is trying to fix a puzzle that you can't really fix. But there is, if there is a tangible, practical action I can take, I want to take it. If there isn't, if I feel that I've done everything I can do, then I got. I I'm just going to take a break. Yeah, yeah, that's a great response. Well, gosh, Sarah, I have a feeling we could talk for a really long time. I think we could too. <laughs> <laughs> and I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And I I really want people to download the workbook or go get it in print if you do something. You could go to a store and actually you could. You could <laughs> you could ask you could ask Barnes and Noble to yeah. order it. Put it on their shelves. Put it on their shelves. It is if you oh here, side side note, if you go into your local Barnes and Noble and request it, they will order it for you. Mm -hmm. And that's always a good thing. It's a good thing for the authors and it's a good thing for the community because other people read that book too. And I really think it's an important book for people to get into, especially right now when we really are struggling with so many things. Yes. You know what exercise I really liked writing was the social circle one. I don't know if you remember this mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. but it's it talks about, and actually Simon was the one that helped me write this it talks about the layers of your social circle. So the inner, the bullseye is people that you're really close to. And then as you move out to the different rings of the circle, it's the, like the last ring is strangers. So it, that exercise talks about ways to bring people who are not so close to you, but you want to get to know into that inner circle. And I love that exercise so much because it's great for people that have social anxiety but want to make friends. Introverts pay attention to that. Yes, introverts <laughs> unite separately in your own houses. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but about the pandemic, you know, and Zoom, is us introverts can just be very gregarious when we. We can, through. we can, <laughs> and um, and I will say that if you do, no, let let's think, let's manifest this when you get the CBT workbook because you should get it. Oh wait, no, I shouldn't say should should stop shooting all over yourself go get should, it yeah just go should, get it. just go get it should is a bad should is not a cbt word because it's, it's a guilt trippy word so we don't say should i believe that you need the cbt workbook and i believe it will help you i'm confident that it will help you um with so many different areas of your life but yeah. when I you get it confident i'm so glad you're confident you are so awesome <laughs> When you get it, please review it on Amazon so people know what you think. You can leave an honest review, but we, we love reviews. Simon and I love reviews. Who doesn't love reviews? Who, who doesn't? I love reading reviews, too. <laughs> well, why don't you tell people where they can find you and where they can find the book, and then we can make sure that they really go get it. They better go get it. <laughs> get I'm just going to say that again. Just get the book. Just get it. So you can, you can find me on my website, sarahfader.com. I am always on Twitter, as Janet knows, um, 
at the Sarah Fader. And I wasn't trying to be a narcissist, but you know, the Sarah Fader was taken. I'm so sad. <laughs> like, and, and I've asked Twitter, maybe with Elon Musk taking over, he'll give me my name. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. No, he's, I don't know what, I don't know. If he, I don't even want to get into that, but. No, we should not get into that. We should not that. get into that. But okay, at the Sarah Fader on Twitter, sarahfader.com. And, you know, let me know what you think. You can also, for the VIP people listening to this, you can email me at sarahfader at gmail.com. It's such a hard email address to remember, you know? Oh, so hard. So really? difficult. <laughs> like, where did I get off? Do you remember when Gmail was invite only? Yes. And I was so proud. And then I got the wrong email and I ended up with like four Gmail accounts, which is what becomes a nightmare. That it is a nightmare. a nightmare. But I remember being proud too. It was really exciting. Yeah, it was. And I'm glad I did because I like it. Yes. <sighs> Thank you. Thank so you much, so much Sarah. for having me. Everybody get the book. Did we say that? Get the book? Yeah, oh yeah. Wait, let me, let me go back to that. So get the book. You can find, <laughs> you're going to have so much fun editing this. Episode. Don't just get, Oh, I don't edit that much. Okay, don't good. get this book by itself. Go look for Sarah on Amazon. Get her other books because yes. she's got some really great books. The Stigma Fighters Anthology is a wonderful way to really get in the heads of some people who are struggling that might be just like you, probably are just like you. So make sure that you follow that. All the links are going to be in the blog post. And so if you're listening to the podcast, leave comments. And then go to the blog post and leave comments there too, because we love comments as much as we love book recommendations. We love comments, but yes, <laughs> go on Amazon, look up Sarah Fader. You'll find when you when you search my name, you'll find the CBT workbook. It's like the first thing that comes up. Yep, there you go. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been great. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Mindful Social. It's been so great to see the subscriptions growing and the feedback has really helped me make the show even better. So if you know somebody who needs to be on the show, email me at Janet at JanetFouts.com and please send me feedback there too or post a review on the podcast platform you're listening on. Oh, and do me a favor, share this show on social media or with a friend. Thank you.